Welcome to the Sum of It All Thinking Classrooms podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we've been exploring Peter Lilliadal's newest book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. Welcome to episode 15, where we've reached the final chapter of the book, chapter 15, on pulling the 14 practices together to build a thinking classroom. And we're excited to chat, chat about this chapter with you today um, and our next steps with Thinking Classrooms and to share a couple of great surprises we've put together for you today. Well, Audrey, as I was reading the last chapter, you know, I was thinking about how many education books provide the strategies, but they skip the implementation. You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, we've got this shiny new idea and it's like, go forth and just, you know, do it, right? And so, you know, as I was reading, I was like, man, I'm curious about Peter's thinking around this. Hey, I have an idea. Let's ask him. Welcome to our podcast, Peter Lilladal. Uh, tell us about your decision making around chapter 15. I mean, how did, how did you think about like just including this extra chapter that, you know, in some case could have been left off the book, but you have this chapter around implementation. I'm just so curious, like, is that something that you thought of from the very beginning of writing the book, or was it something that came along as you were writing it? We're really curious. Okay, well, so first of all, thanks for having me. I've been loving listening to the podcast. Um, I can't wait for episode 14 to come out. Um, so I'm looking forward to listening to all of them. Um, so in answer to your question, Mark, um, it was always meant to be there because it was part of the research. So if you've, been, if you've been following along in the podcast or you've read along in the book, you, you're coming to the same question, right? Like there's no way I can do all 14 of these at once. Uh, I got to start somewhere. And I can tell you that if you start by deciding I'm just not going to answer questions, you're, you're going to have a bad day, right? Like there is, there is some places where we need to start. And the book is in fact laid out this way, but it didn't come about randomly. Um, I dug into the research. I, I, we did some implementation work where we had tons of teachers experiencing these workshops in different sequences and going away and trying to implement the practices in different order because the research emerged sort of, we're working on this practice, we're working on that practice. Now we have them all and where do we start? So well, let's give them to teachers and see if I tell you to do it in this order, how does that work? If I tell you someone else to do it in a different order, how, how did that work for you? And what came back out of that research was that image in chapter 15 with the four circles uh, in, in what I call toolkits. And when that emerged, I was just flabbergasted by what emerged in there. I had, I had no idea that that's what would come out. There were some things that were intuitive, that some things have to happen before others. But it took me a year of sitting and staring at that thing before I started to understand why perhaps that was some of the, some of the reasons behind why that was this pseudo sequence, I call it, that emerged. Um, and I talk about this in chapter 15, for example, that the first three practices need to be random groups, vertical surfaces, and, and thinking tasks. And, and that sort of made sense because that's where we were having a lot of success when we were trying it in classrooms and so on. But it took a long time for me to realize that that had really had nothing to do with the teacher. And that was all about creating an environment that, would, that was different enough that students could start the transformation from being passive receivers of knowledge to active creators of knowledge, that they could start that transition themselves. 
So yes, the teacher had to do a bunch of stuff, but that was really about transforming students. And so it was always intended to be there. In fact, it was intended to be a bigger part of the book. There was supposed to, that, that it wasn't supposed to be a chapter. It was supposed to be like a part of the book, but, but the book was getting too big. <clears throat> there was supposed to be a whole bunch of chapters about how to deal with students uh, with special designations and diagnoses. And there was supposed to be all of this stuff, but we just couldn't fit it in. So chapter 15 is what I felt was exactly as you said, Mark, the implementation piece, what do teachers need to launch now? Well, and as you're talking, Peter, it just makes me, again, appreciate the idea of research intersecting with practice. I think, again, uh, a lot of times what we find in educational books is this idea of lots of strategies or lots of research. And it, it, I just think that your book really has just this really nice intersection of those two. And yeah, I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. And one of the things specifically that Audrey and I have talked about a lot um, in our work is this, this notion of task and like it being all about the task. And as you stated in chapter 15, you know, Peter, it's, it's, that's, that's a right and a wrong statement. You know, it is about the task, but if, if nothing else changes, you have so many unintended consequences that happen in the implementation. Um, Audrey, what, what are you thinking about that in terms of task and so forth? Well, it's, it's super interesting. I think with our own practice, that's been something that we've tried to encourage teachers to take on as they've tried to change something in their class. It's always been like, try to do put something else in front of kids, right? Put something different in front of them and see if something different starts to happen. And it's, it's a hit or miss. Like sometimes something amazing will happen, but I think back to the introduction and there's sometimes when it falls completely apart, right? The kids are like, we're not having this. We're just going to sit here and we're going to stare at this. We're all going to raise our hands um, and ask lots of questions. And so it doesn't change anything that happens in class. And it actually makes the teacher uh, feel a lot worse about what's happening. So I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, where this, when this came about, Peter, like, where did, where did that wrestling with it's more than the task come from? Was that in the initial stages of your research or how did that come about? So it's, it's such a good question, right? Because if you read the introduction, there's that story of Jane and yeah, heck, we can fix this. Here's a task, right? Like how naive was I to think that that's all it was going to take. And, and then when I started, when I went beyond Jane's class and I started visiting those other 40 classrooms and I started to realize that everywhere I'm going, I'm seeing students not thinking and everywhere I'm going, I'm seeing these same institutional normative structures. These have got to be connected. So I got to start breaking through these norms. And, and that's where the inspiration came. And it wasn't a well laid out or thought out plan. It was really just, let's get in there and disrupt classrooms and see if we can get more thinking happening. The task is always necessary. If we want students to think, we've got to give them something to think about. But, but I initially thought that that was sufficient and it is far from sufficient. And, and early on, like, we were doing some crazy stuff. And I remember there was this one experiment where we had, we had a group of teachers teaching for two weeks in classrooms with no furniture, like not a stitch of furniture, no desk, oh, wow. table, no teacher's desk, no file cabinet, like bare room. And, and we thought like, let's go, let's go nuts. Like every classroom has furniture. So let's see what happened. We didn't have an expectation that this would, would, be a lasting effect, an effect that we wanted to recreate. But, you know, I was really just trying to poke this thing with a sharp stick and see what happened. And 
what happened was that we got way more thinking out of students. And of course, we can't sustain that. Teachers right. don't want to be in classrooms without furniture. But I mean, and that was a really important part of the research that Mark spoke to, I think, a little bit or intimated, is that because all the research was embedded with real teachers, there was this real sort of, um, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, like, so it's, there's no point coming out with a strategy that nobody wants to implement. So there was always this infused with reality. But, but again, it took me a long time to make sense of what was it? Well, why did that teaching in a classroom without furniture work? And it turns out that when students walk into a space, they bring their studenting behaviors with them. These are these habits I talk about in chapter one. And if they walk into a space that looks exactly like every other space they walk into, they're going to bring those habits with them. And that then already predetermines how something is going to go over. And I think this explains why so many teachers in mathematics have had trouble launching around students journaling in mathematics, right? I love journaling in mathematics, but to kids, it just looks like weird homework. Why would I behave differently? And if there aren't enough signals to tell the kids that they should behave differently, they're not going to behave differently. And giving a task, putting just something different in front of them is not enough. And I think, again, coming back to that first toolkit, this is why that first toolkit is what it is because it looks different enough that the kids leave their habits at the door. I think that is such an important point. I appreciated how you related that to what Stigler and Hebert talked about in the teaching gap about systems and how in a system it just, it wants to reinforce itself, right? So if you change one feature, it rushes to repair itself versus um, you have to overwhelm the system's ability to defend itself. And it sounds like that's really what you did when you said, let's get rid of all the furniture. <laughs> like, I'm, there's no way you can defend yourself against this. There's no furniture, you can't deal with this. Something has to change. Um, but really trying to signal, um, and it comes back to that notion that I think Mark and I have talked about many, many times about communicating exactly what it is we're saying we believe it is to be in a math class, what, what it is that we believe teaching and learning looks like and sounds like, um, that we have to really communicate that clearly um, in a very, very, very different way. Mark, what were you thinking about that, that piece? Well, I, I would, it, it, it really makes me think about this whole idea of the toolkits and how the things were implemented, uh, you know, in, in terms of the first toolkit and the second toolkit and that idea of how the student became the focus of the first toolkit and the teacher became the focus of the second toolkit. And I, I just, I found that really interesting because it's, it's this idea of the shifting of the classroom norms and that this, this big change that's happening. And what it, what it really leads me to wonder about is Peter, when you, when you were developing this work, did you see that coming that it was going to be more about the student in the first toolkit and more about the teacher in, in the second toolkit? Um, because I, it really made me think about, again, back to change, you know, how, how do we create change in classrooms? How do we make sustainable baby steps that will, that will last? And if we try to change so much at once, that's not going to happen. So I was curious about that dynamic of the student change and then the teacher change. So it's, you know, I think as part of the research, I was always thinking about like, like the students who we were focused on, right? Like it's, are the students thinking more or more students thinking, right? Like that, that was constantly the focus, but of course the change is coming through the teacher. So the teacher enacts something, we look for the effect on the student, 
right? So there was always this sort of reciprocal relationship between teaching and learning as it should be. But in terms of the sequence emerging, again, this was just the way it came back to me in the data, but it makes, it makes sense in many ways, right? Like I think so much, so many efforts to try to change the experiences for students in a classroom have forgotten that the student has a say in whether or not something is gonna work or not. And, and it comes back to this that, let's say, we, let's say those first two toolkits were reversed. I don't right. think it would work. I really don't think it would work. If a teacher comes in and just starts answering questions or starts being verbal with their question, that's all they do. I think the students would object, they would rebel. There isn't enough there to change them. And I think the teacher would abandon the effort because, because their efforts to create something isn't being met with a reciprocal change in the student behavior. And, and what I think what's interesting about this research is it sort of says, let's change the student first. And it's not like it's saying, let's change it. The research said, change the student first. And then that'll leave room for the teacher to start changing. And of course, I say that tongue in cheek because random groups and vertical surfaces don't happen without the teacher enacting those things. But, it's, but they're, they're pretty easy things to enact. They're kind of scary, but they're easy to enact, to be honest. Yeah, things that are difficult for teachers to enact are, are uh, like, how do I answer? How do I not answer questions? Like that's actually harder than it looks. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. And it, you know, it reminds me, Peter, when I was in uh, the classroom one year, there came a directive down that said that we should all get rid of our teacher desks. And it was so out of the blue, you know, it was sort of around the defronting, I think at the, at the time, at least I'll assume it was, but, but it was just, it gets back to your forest through the trees point. I mean, there was no sort of end purpose to doing that. It was just this isolated thing. So again, that's what makes me appreciate, um, what you've created here in, in the book is this idea of we're headed towards something and there's a, there's a carefully um, crafted way that you might get there, but we're, but we're not gonna lose sight of that it's about thinking in the end. And so I think that was what was missing when, when folks said, oh, let's just get rid of teacher desks and teachers were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's, a, that's something that happens in education a lot. We've, and I think this is what happens in classrooms a lot. The teacher wants to change for a reason, but they forget to tell the kids that, that, that we're making change and we're making change for a reason. And I think that educational systems also make change. They wanna create change, but they forget to tell the teacher why we're making this change and, and what the goal is. And, and I think we have to remember who the stakeholders are, right? The biggest stakeholder in a classroom is the students. Right? They have the most to gain, the most to lose, and there's the most of them. Right? We, we have to think about the sheer momentum that the will of students has on our practice. And, and I think that that's what Thinking Classrooms really showcases is that it's this framework that is in chapter 15 is a developmental framework, but it's developmental for the teacher and for the students. It's sort of this, we're, there's gonna be change created in the students and out of that change, the teacher is gonna have room to grow. And out of that growth is gonna be growth in the students. And, and it's this sort of, again, this relationship between the teaching and the learning and they grow together because some of the things you wanna achieve in chapter, in toolkit three, you cannot achieve until the students have made adequate change. Like it's really hard to create flow in a classroom unless the students are being autonomous. 
right? So it's, we got to get there together so that we can take the next step together. Yeah. I think those are great points. Well, we want to help folks on their steps towards implementing um, and getting part of this process started. So one way that we know we can help and another one of our surprises today is that we have a whole bunch of whiteboards or vertical non-permanent surfaces that we'd like to give away to at least the folks locally in San Diego. We haven't figured out how to do massive shipping um, costs across the country and internationally. Um, for those listeners, we have another surprise later. But if you are local in San Diego and you need help getting started with some vertical non-permanent surfaces, at the end of the podcast, we'll tell you um, where to find us online and to click and we will um, we have some whiteboards to give away to start in your classroom journey on trying that out. Um, into the summer, into the fall. Um, but as you think about implementation, Peter, um, I'm curious if you have any stories you've gathered from folks over the years about an exciting implementation story or something that happened. We heard a lot of stories in practice kind of as people were doing the work, but anyone further along that had an exciting story or anyone that, you know, a story that's really stuck out to you in terms of a teacher trying this work on that you, um, that you think might be fun to share with, with our listeners? Oh, there's so many stories. In fact, I have a whole folder of, of um, success stories, I call them, where people email me out of the blue. Um, <clears throat> I th- I'll tell a very prototypical story, a story that emerges all the time, which is a teacher goes ahead and implements. They launch first three practices, and then they come back. And, they, and, and the stories that they tell and how excited they are about this is is... It, it happens all the time, but it's, it's something I love hearing about. And the story that they tell that I love hearing more about than anything else is, I didn't know that student could do that. Mm. That sort of, I have a student, I've never heard her speak. And all of a sudden she's, she's in her group and she's talking up a storm. Or I, this student is always off task and always uh, a nuisance to me. And I'm always having to manage their behavior and this student was, was just so absorbed in this task that he stayed in during recess and kept working on it, right? Like those kinds of stories, the, the, they're so uplifting, the possibility that there's a student who in the, in the sort of systemic normative structures of school is being run over by the institution. And that when we change the game, we switch to this thinking classroom model, but that student can find a place and find an identity in that space. And I think that, I, to me, that's just that just makes it all worth it. Um, I do remember I had I, I worked with this grade five teacher, and she said to me one day, she says, "You know, I cry every day." Oh. And I thought, "Oh, <laughs> she says, no, it's just I'll stand in my classroom and I'll just start to cry because it's just so touching watching the way the kids make room for each other, the way they find a way wow. to actively include everybody." And, and just the kindness that they show to each other. And I think that, like I wrote a little bit about that in chapter two, about the way that random groups mobilizes empathy and, and, and empathy that we don't even know kids can possess sometimes. And it's just, it's these kinds of stories that keep me moving forward, right? Wow, those are, those are powerful. And they're a good reminder of, it's worth taking on the risk to try these, um, try this out in your own classroom and to, to, to try out implementation to see those kinds of things happen for our students. Um, I'm curious about um, the smallest first step someone can take. Um, 
I know that in the past, when I've asked teachers to try on something small, I have recommended trying on a new kind of task once a unit or once a week or whatever. And I noticed in this chapter, that was a big, like, don't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to try one task like that um, when you're trying to build a thinking classroom. And that was a big aha for me. Um, not that it wouldn't, you know, I thought there'd be some kind of benefit from it, but it, it looks like the research says there's none. So I got to stop that practice. So I'm curious, what's, what's the smallest step a teacher can make if they're like, I'm ready to do something, but don't ask me to do something big. This year has been rough. What's the smallest step you would say they could make and start to see some impact on their classroom? Oh, it's, so, okay. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give the, my bet, what I think is the optimal answer. And the optimal answer is pick a task from the book, do random groups and vertical surfaces, hack your classroom, don't spend a ton of money, put up cellophane and final picnic table covers, have kids writing on windows, pick a fun task, do it once, just once, do it once. And if you liked it, if you saw something that was powerful to you, do it a second time. And if that was powerful for you and you have a story like the one I told about empathy or a student who you, you have sort of has been on the margins is all of a sudden taking a step forward, do it again. And I think this is one of the powers of thinking classrooms is that I'm, I've, the research tells me what the optimal practices are and it tells me what the optimal sequencing is, but it's still up to the teacher whether they wanna do it or not. But I think what's so powerful about thinking classrooms is I don't have to convince you to go to the ninth practice or the eighth practice, just start. Mm -hmm. And then if you see value in that, you're, keep, you're gonna keep going. And I think one of the, the things that Thinking Classroom does, it has a lot of success at launch. And this is one of the things that a lot of implementations don't, right? Like if a, if a teacher's first experience with something is, is horrible, it's unlikely that they wanna keep pursuing that. But what if it's amazing? And I think thinking classrooms gives way more likelihood that teachers are gonna have a successful positive first experience, which is going to then help them decide if they wanna do it a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. And, and that's sort of the normal trajectory for teachers is they don't come out of one of my workshops or something going, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this for six weeks, right? Or they don't come out and say, oh, I can't wait to get to chapter 14. They come out of there going, okay, I'm gonna try something. And then, that's what convinces them that it works. Me telling you that it works is, or showing a video, that's, that's not evidence. Evidence is you being in the classroom and seeing your students thinking oh. at your own hands, you enacting something that, you're, that causes your students to think and the power in that. I think, I think that's such a, a wonderful point, Peter. I think that it just reinforces that the notion that when we see students do something that for, you know, we got in this profession for a reason because our hearts can be turned by that type of thing. And when we see that, um, that means more than any professional learning that we attend. You know, it, it, just, it, it just stays with us. And we know we have to sustain that change because we believe in students and we, we want to change their lives. And when we see that happen in front of us, there's something that goes off inside of us that, that says, I'm in this because mm -hmm. I see what happens to students. And I I, I, I just love that. Um, so the, the other thing we were wondering, Peter, is in Audrey and I kind of talked about this once in a while when we, we'd be uh, in the podcast mode is, and we know you haven't listened to all the podcasts, but we were thinking like 
man, it must be strange for Peter. You know, here, here's this like his life's work, maybe to some extent. And we're sitting there just talking about it each week. And, he, and he's like, yeah, that's not exactly what I meant by that. <laughs> you know, and you mentioned that fact earlier that, you know, maybe, you know, we were anticipating something you were going to answer the next chapter or something. So as we're getting near the end of the our episode here, I just thought it might be interesting. Is there anything that you and it's okay if you don't remember something, but if there's something that you might remember that that sparked a thought when you were listening to one of our podcasts that might be fun to kind of clarify or or share something about. Um, so I, I've sort of put my work out there, right? And I put it out there a long time before the book came out. And one of the things that happens when you put your work out there is you have to accept the fact that people are going to interpret it however they want to interpret it, right? I can't own your interpretation of it. Um, what's been really fun for me is listening to how someone experiences a book cover to cover. And, and I mentioned this in our little preamble that I love listening to you ask questions that I know the answers are coming. <laughs> but, it, but it allows me to see how a teacher might experience this book because it's really hard for me to read this book from, the, from that perspective, knowing how it ends. Um, I do want to say one of the things that I really appreciate about listening to the podcast, and I have listened to all of them, is the focus on equity. The way you raise that question every week about how does, where's the equity in here? Where's, how does this create more equitable spaces? And I think it's such an important question. And I have, and I've been talking a lot about that myself as well lately. And not that I'm an ex equity specialist and not that I research this from a perspective of equity, but looking at where, where in thinking classrooms is it removing inequity? Where is it removing barriers to equity? Uh, how's it creating access, right? And, and, and I love thinking about that. And I love that you're thinking about that. And I have to tell you that on the last episode I listened to, you did not talk about it. And I was so, I was waiting for it. And then the music came and it was, so I, I really appreciate that lens. And um, I think it's so important. I think it's, I think math in its institutionally normative structure just creates so much inequity and so much inequitable access. And, and it can be so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Great point. And you know, that Audrey and I've had multiple conversations over the course of this podcast, especially around um, meeting the needs of students with disabilities and, and how they, they have the potential of being more fully included as they are part of these visibly random groups. And they're working with all of their, their classmates throughout the course of the, a week or a month. And just the, 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 the opportunity for their classmates to see their brilliance on a regular basis uh, is, is really exciting to us. And, and it has really influenced uh, our next move, as a matter of fact. Um, we're gonna be continuing that journey as we set up season two. And in season two, we will be reading and discussing Humanizing Disability in Mathematics Education by Paolo Tan, uh, Alexis Padilla, Erica Mason, and James Sheldon. So Audrey and I are, are really excited about kicking off um, that next episode. And so uh, Peter, thanks a million for joining us in this session of exploring building thinking classrooms. And uh, 
Next week, as I mentioned, we'll begin season two of our podcast on humanizing disability and math education. But again, Peter, I just want to say thank you uh, very much for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me, but more importantly, for, for doing this podcast and inviting teachers to read along and, and to think about things that emerge out of the book. Definitely, definitely. Um, so folks, uh, you can join us on the same podcast platform that you listen in on. Uh, also for our local listeners, you can enter our whiteboard giveaway by visiting www.sdcoe.net slash math and clicking on the sum of it all button on the page. You can reach out to us directly at sumofitallpodcast at sdcoe.net or on Twitter using the hashtag SumMathChat with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, we wish you great mathematical adventures. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>